Herein lie buried many things which have read with patience may show the strange meaning of being black here at the dawning of the twentieth century. This meaning is not without interest to you, gentle reader, for the problem of the twentieth century is the problem of the color line. I pray you then receive my little book in all charity, studying my words with me, forgiving mistake and foible for sake of the faith and passion that is in me, and seeking the grain of truth hidden there. Between me and the other world, there is ever an unasked question, unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it. All, nevertheless, flutter round it. They approach me in a half-hesitant sort of way. I me curiously or compassionately, and then, instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent colored man in my town, or I fought at Mechanicsville, or do not these southern outrages make your blood boil? At these I smile, or am interested, or reduce the boiling to a simmer, as the occasion may require. To the real question, how does it feel to be a problem, I answer seldom a word. And yet, being a problem is a strange experience, peculiar even for one who has never been anything else, save perhaps in babyhood and in Europe. It is in the early days of rollicking boyhood that the revelation first burst upon one, all in a day, as it were. I remember well when the shadow swept across me. I was a little thing, away up in the hills of New England, where the dark Housatonic winds between Hoosac and Tekanic to the sea, in a wee wooden schoolhouse, something put it into the boys' and girls' heads to buy gorgeous visiting cards, ten cents a package, and exchange. The exchange was merry, till one girl, a tall newcomer, refused my card, refused it peremptorily, with a glance. Then it dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others, or like mayhap, in heart and life and longing, but shut out from their world by a vast veil. I had thereafter no desire to tear down that veil, to creep through. I held all beyond it in common contempt, and lived above it in a region of blue sky and great wandering shadows. That sky was bluest when I could beat my mates at an examination time, or beat them at a foot race, or even beat their stringy heads. Alas, with the years all this fine contempt began to fade, for the words I longed for, and all their dazzling opportunities, were theirs, not mine. But they should not keep these prizes, I said. Some, all, I would wrest from them. Just how I would do it, I could never decide by reading law, by healing the sick, by telling the wonderful tales that swam in my head, some way. With other black boys, the strife was not so fiercely sunny. Their youth shrunk into tasteless sycophancy, or into silent hatred of the pale world about them and mocking distrust of everything white, or wasted itself in a bitter cry. Why did God make me an outcast and a stranger in my own house? The shades of the prison house 
closed round about us all, walls straight and stubborn to the whitest, but relentlessly narrow, tall, and unscalable to sons of night, who must plod darkly on in resignation, or beat unavailing palms against the stone, or steadily, half hopelessly, watch the streak of blue above. After the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil, and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro. Two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither of the older selves to be lost. He would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world and Africa. He would not bleach his Negro soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. Welcome to Nearest Fiddle, episode 35, Groping Toward Humanity. Our opening this week is from W.E.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk. We met him first in episode 30. He was raised in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, which was relatively tolerant for the times. He was a gifted student and became the first African-American to get a Ph.D. from Harvard. He published his classic book, The Souls of Black Folk, in 1903. By the time Du Bois published The Souls of Black Folk, Booker T. Washington was the most prominent African-American leader in the U.S. Washington argued that blacks should continue to live a segregated existence from whites, but should rise up and ennoble themselves through self-improvement, through an attempt to, quote, dignify and glorify common labor. In a speech to a mostly white audience, Washington said, the wisest of my race, understand that the agitation of questions of social equality is the extremest folly. Progress in the enjoyment of all the privileges that will come to us must be the result of severe and constant struggle rather than artificial forcing. The opportunity to earn a dollar in a factory just now is worth infinitely more 
than to spend a dollar in an opera house. Du Bois was having none of this. With the souls of black folk, he moved the conversation regarding race from how to make the best of Jim Crow to honest and true civil rights for African Americans. Yeah, it was a heavy lift. 1903 was only seven years after Plessy v. Ferguson, the Supreme Court case that enshrined separate but equal as the law of the land, and Jim Crow was in full swing. Racist whites had their darling African American in Booker T. Washington, who was teaching blacks to accept their place in the order of things and become the best laborer or craftsman they could be. It was less than 40 years after the Civil War. Many people alive could still remember the days in which black servitude was the accepted social order. For them, the movement from slavery to Jim Crow was a sea change in the social order and a significant step forward in the rights of blacks. Here they had their own rights. Jim Crow allowed them to keep to their own kind. They preferred it that way, just as the whites preferred keeping to their own kind. It was true. Just ask Booker T. Washington. Into this world stepped W.E.B. Du Bois, who said that the problem of the 20th century was the problem of the color line. He was not content with the segregation from mainstream society that Jim Crow offered, not content with black education being forced merely on preparation for menial labor and trades, not content with the loss of black voting rights, and not content with the disenfranchisement of blacks, particularly in the South. Du Bois argued openly with Booker T. regarding the direction the African-American movement should go in. It didn't take Du Bois long to begin the movement toward civil rights. In 1909, he was one of the co-founders of the NAACP, along with Ida B. Wells and others. The 15th Amendment, which granted African Americans the right to vote, was ratified in 1870. This led to a flowering of democracy in the South, with numerous blacks representing areas populated by a large number of African Americans. Southern whites were determined to stop this, and they were very successful. The institution of poll taxes disenfranchised about half the blacks in the South. Huge percentages of the rest were disenfranchised by literacy tests. Illiterate white voters, upset that they too had been disenfranchised by these tests, were placated by the institution of grandfather clauses, allowing someone to vote if they were descended from someone who had been eligible to vote before the passage of the 15th Amendment. These and other measures designed to, quote, prevent voter fraud, had reduced the number of black voters in the South to a small handful by the time the NAACP came along in 1909. Lynchings were rampant at this time as well, with the perpetrators rarely held to account. And the Ku Klux Klan would experience very significant growth following the first full-length Hollywood blockbuster in 1915, Birth of a Nation, which glorified the KKK. The NAACP had its work cut out for it in these early years. But they were up to the challenge. By 1916, the NAACP had a membership of almost 90,000. Great black leaders such as W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells, a journalist who courageously did more than perhaps any other to expose the horror that lynching had become in the U.S., stepped up as leaders of the civil rights movement. With champions like Du Bois and Wells, 
the cause for black civil rights began to take hold, but sympathetic readers were largely in the North, along with some in the West. The South, meanwhile, was busy enforcing its, quote, black codes. Virtually all the former Confederate states enforced strict vagrancy laws against blacks. Blacks were forced to sign labor contracts and punished severely if they broke these contracts to obtain better employment. There were many black codes. Some limited the type of property blacks could own. Some even forced some miners into unpaid labor for white planters. The black codes were far more onerous than any white northerner could have foreseen at the close of the Civil War. The effect of the black codes, along with the sharecropping system, conspired to make it incredibly difficult for African Americans to thrive in the Jim Crow South. As a result, black families began to move from the rural South to the Northeast, Midwest, and West in what's called the Great Migration. From 1916 to 1970, six million African Americans relocated North and West. Even so, there was still much discrimination in these areas, especially in the Midwest and Western states. A great deal of the growth of the KKK was here. Yet the Northeast, Midwest, and West were far less bigoted than the South as a whole. Though there is much bigotry there, there were also many liberals with whom the NAACP could find a sympathetic audience. The nascent civil rights movement ran into even more headwinds than it could have imagined. I'm sure there's something akin to Maslow's hierarchy of needs that kicks in during depressions. Though Ida B. Wells had reached a great audience in writing about violence and lynchings against blacks, and though W.E.B. Du Bois had woken a lot of people up with his Souls of Black Folk, and even with the NAACP growing exponentially before the Great Depression, the movement was soon to face an uphill battle. People don't get very excited about the welfare of others when they can't even feed their family properly. No great leaps were made in race relations during the Great Depression. Remember, it's been the human condition since the earliest Homo sapien hunter-gatherers to lack sufficient compassion for those we see as outgroups. In Depression-era America, that would be the black race. Unemployment rose as high as 25% during the Depression across all Americans. For blacks, unemployment was 50%. In some places, like Philadelphia and Detroit, it was 60%. Racial tensions and anti-black violence ramped up again in the 1930s after falling prior to the Great Depression. In 1940, however, Richard Wright burst onto the scene with his shocking novel, Native Son, which graphically showed the injustice of being black in the 1930s and the passions associated with that and brought the subject of racial oppression deeply into the consciousness of Americans like it hadn't been since the Civil War. Still, during the Great Depression, FDR hadn't completely ignored civil rights. He had a number of black advisors and entertained African Americans at the White House. He seems to have been temperamentally inclined to support the cause of civil rights, yet politics got in his way. Southern congressmen told him that they would openly oppose his New Deal plans if he supported civil rights legislation. FDR backed off. Then there was World War II. Civil rights leader A. Philip Randolph threatened to march on Washington to protest discrimination in the military and with defense contractors. 
At that point, FDR signed Executive Order 8802, which ordered that all persons, regardless of race, creed, color, or national origin, would thereafter be fully allowed to participate in the defense of the United States. Some 1.2 million black men served in the U.S. military during World War II. Though often fighting with honor and distinction, many were initially treated as second-class citizens. Yet they persevered, working hard, and, when called on, fighting bravely. FDR died shortly before the end of World War II. His vice president, Harry Truman, was born and raised in Missouri and adopted the open bigotry of his home state. When he was 27 years old and a corporal in the Missouri National Guard, he wrote a letter to his future wife. I think one man is just as good as another, so long as he's honest and decent and not a N-word or Chinaman. I'm strongly of the opinion that Negroes ought to be in Africa, yellow men in Asia, and white men in Europe and America. But as we've noted before, he did sign Executive Order 9981 in 1948 to integrate the military. He was told that he needed the black vote, so he needed to sign this. Again, I think this was probably his main motivation in integrating the army, but who knows? Perhaps a Truman scholar could shed more light on this. Whatever the reason, the civil rights gained enough strength and power that after World War II, the military was integrated. This might have caused significant problems in an earlier decade, but I can remember my dad, who served in the Navy in the Korean War, talking about how his fellow African-American sailors were thought of as no different than any other sailor. This would have been in 1950 or 51. It's a world away from Truman's letter to his wife. What a difference 40 years can make. The Korean War was over in 1953. Now the civil rights leaders truly began to pick up steam. It was also in 1953 that James Baldwin published Go Tell It on the Mountain, a novel that spoke very touchingly and passionately about the struggles faced by black families. I don't have room to put it on my reading list, but this is another good book to read before you die. James moved to France after the publication of his book, which was a much more accepting venue for an out gay black man in the 1950s. James Baldwin was mentored by Richard Wright, who had published Native Son, which showed a much bleaker view of black life on Chicago's South Side. Like Susan B. Anthony, crisscrossing the United States on endless speaking tours, tirelessly and ceaselessly working to get out the word and raise America's awareness of the justness of their cause. By the 1950s, African-American writers and advocates like W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells were joined by voices like Wright and Baldwin. Organizations like the NAACP were joined by other well-run organizations like the Congress of Racial Equity. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference also joined the battle for equal rights. Long gone was any call from the black community for separate systems. At first, there were voices like W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells, who were amazing voices, but they were on their own advocating for their cause. Now news organizations were picking up African-American voices and amplifying their messages, and more importantly, events that stirred Americans' passions and brought sympathy to the cause of civil rights. Into this atmosphere, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, 
It had taken 86 years. In the early days after the passage of the 14th Amendment, conservative Supreme Court justices had been over backwards to hold that the wording of the amendment didn't mean what it said. The amendment had several very important clauses in it, but in 1896, the court held that what should be the most important clause, the Equal Protection Clause, which says that no state shall deny any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of the laws, didn't really mean equal protection. In Plessy v. Ferguson, the court allowed separate but equal facilities and created a segregated United States that would stand for over half a century. For the first time in Brown, then, the Supreme Court held that equal protection of the laws really meant equal protection to all under the law. Separate, by its very nature, it was inherently unequal. Importantly, the decision was unanimous. There were justices from across the political spectrum, and they all held the state didn't have the right, under the 14th Amendment, to exclude black children from white schoolhouses. Then, in August of 1955, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old from Chicago, was brutally beaten to death while visiting family in Mississippi for allegedly flirting with a white girl. His murderers were acquitted without much ado. As it turns out, there was nothing particularly special about this murder, at least for Mississippi. There had been hundreds of lynchings in the Deep South, yet we all know Emmett Till's name and the brutal injustice of his death. What was different about Emmett Till's lynching? Ida B. Wells had laid the groundwork for serious coverage of lynching with her work and reporting on lynching decades earlier. Now, Jet, a magazine with a nationwide readership, published a picture of Till's beaten and mangled body, which his parents had laid out in an open casket, so everyone could see what had been done to their son. The horrors of lynching were finally exposed to a national audience. Emmett Till's death isn't important because it was so horrific. Trust me, his death was barbaric, but there had been hundreds of similar and even more horrific deaths. Emmett Till's death is important because it's the one in which white America finally stood up and said, this is no longer acceptable in our country. Then, later that same year, 1955, Rosa Parks, an African-American woman, had the courage to defy the law in Montgomery, Alabama, and sit in the front of a bus and not move to the rear of the bus when ordered by the driver. Her brave defiance prompted a year-long bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, forcing a change in the law that had required blacks to segregate themselves on public buses. Or so the well-known story goes. True enough, as far as it goes, but what's left out is that Rosa Parks was definitely not the first African-American to be arrested for refusing to move to the back of the bus. What was different about her case is that, with Rosa Parks, the civil rights lawyers and activists looking for a case to champion thought they had a woman with the fortitude, courage, and character that would make an exemplary plaintiff. In this, they were very right. With Rosa Parks, they not only had a plaintiff with the fortitude and character to stand up and be the spokesman for a boycott, but had found a lifelong civil rights leader whose character would be an example for all who would follow her. In 1957, nine African-American students were barred from entering an erstwhile all-black school where they had been enrolled in accordance with Brown v. Board of Education. The governor of Arkansas, 
Orville Faubus, called out the National Guard to block their entry into the school. In response, President Dwight D. Eisenhower called in federal troops to assure their entry into the school. Thank you, Orville. The episode drew national attention once again to the cause of civil rights. By the 1960s, the cause of civil rights truly caught fire. Protests were everywhere in city after city. As a young person in the 1960s, it was a subject that people talked about constantly. And well-organized black leaders would not let the nation forget the urgency of the cause of desegregation and civil rights. I wish I had the time to catalog the great struggle for civil rights that was the battle of the early 60s, but time requires I move on. In 1964, the civil rights movement culminated in the Civil Rights Act, which, at long last, prohibited discrimination in the United States on the basis of race, color, religion, or national origin. The act further prohibited discrimination on the basis of sex and race in hiring, promoting, and firing in employment. It prohibited discrimination in public schools and federally funded programs. It explicitly wrote into law the desegregation of the schools that the Brown decision had mandated 10 years earlier. With this sweeping act, the era of Jim Crow and segregation was over. The following year, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This crucial act outlawed all the poll taxes and all the other mechanisms like literacy tests, etc., that the southern states had written into law to deprive blacks of the right to vote. Like the Civil Rights Act of the previous year, this is one of the more consequential acts passed by Congress in the 20th century. In 1964, the black vote in Mississippi was a mere 6% due to all Mississippi's voter suppression statutes and efforts. In 1969, it was 59%. The Voting Rights Act did more than any single law to assure that blacks would have the voice in American politics guaranteed them by the 15th Amendment. That is, until 2013, when a once again conservative Supreme Court held, in the case of Shelby v. Holder, that it's now unconstitutional to continue to apply the Voting Rights Act to southern states. Seriously? Since then, emboldened by a Supreme Court that conservatives feel has its back, red state neoconservatives are working hard to once again restrict voting rights just as they did following the passage of the 15th Amendment when a similarly conservative Supreme Court allowed restrictive voting laws that had the effect of limiting the black vote. This time, red states are passing restrictive laws under the guise of voting integrity. By one count, Republicans have introduced bills to restrict voting in 43 states. In these states, the Republicans have introduced an estimated 272 bills that would restrict Americans' access to vote. Let's end our history review this episode with gay marriage. I grew up in an era in which civil rights for African Americans was very much in the news. Civil rights for gays, however, wasn't even on the radar of most Americans. Then came the Stonewall riots in 1969. The Stonewall Inn had been a gathering place for gays in the Greenwich Village area of Manhattan. Police repeatedly raided the Stonewall Inn and arrested patrons for such atrocities as wearing non-gender-appropriate clothing. 
Remember that private consensual homosexual behavior was still illegal in New York at the time, as it was in most states. Gays had few outlets. These raids became so consistent, and the gay community had been so severely repressed by a homophobic police force, that on the night of June 28, 1969, a spontaneous riot broke out and reignited again over the next several subsequent nights. What was it like to be a closeted gay in 1969? For most people, our sexuality is central to who we are. In 1969, if you were to come out as gay, you could be fired from your job, lose all or many of your friends, and be disowned by your family. It was illegal to be gay in most states at that time, or at least to engage in acts of love with a loved one by a gay man or woman in the privacy of their own home. I'm not sure when a majority of gays felt safe to come out, but it was definitely significantly later than this. Yet those who've come out describe how life-changing the experience is to finally be allowed to be themselves. The Stonewall Riots, as they're now known, are seen as the beginning of this gay rights movement. Again, as when Susan B. Anthony gave her first speech on women's suffrage, there wasn't an existing organized national movement, but the Stonewall Riots energized gays. A year after the Stonewall Riots, gay activists in New York held a parade, then known as the Christopher Street Liberation Day, to commemorate the Stonewall Riots. This would later be known as the first gay pride parade. By then, the tension had become so deep among gays that gay pride parades soon caught on and within a few years were common throughout the U.S. Ten years later, an estimated 79,000 people marched on Washington in the National March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights, demanding equal civil rights and urging passage of protective civil rights legislation. In 1982, Wisconsin was the first state to outlaw discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. By 1987, hundreds of thousands took place in a march on Washington for gay rights. In 1988, the World Health Organization organized the first World AIDS Day, and ten years later, Coretta Scott King called on the civil rights community to join the struggle against homophobia. In 2009, President Obama signed a presidential memorandum allowing same-sex partners of federal employees to receive certain benefits, though it didn't cover full health coverage. In 2010, Congress repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, allowing gays to serve openly in the military. And finally, in 2015, the Supreme Court decided Obergefell versus Hodges declaring same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. This whirlwind tour through the gay rights movement ignored plenty of steps backwards, including Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the Defense of Marriage Act. Yet from the beginning of the movement, the general arc was ever upward and toward more acceptance of gay rights. I think there was little doubt what the ultimate result would be once the millennials began coming of age politically. The Pew Research Center tells us that much of the shift toward favoring gay marriage came with the arrival of the millennial cohort of young adults.
It took 44 years from Susan B. Anthony's first speech on the subject of women's suffrage to the ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. It took 55 years from the founding of the NAACP to the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And it took 46 years from the Stonewall riots to the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell. There seems to be a reasonably well-established pattern for creating social change. A, find a social evil that's pervasive in society. Make it one that's clearly wrong, but that most people engage in because it's what they grew up with and what they're acculturated to. B, start a social movement to overturn that evil and continue year in and year out to protest and get the word out. And C, wait for a generation to grow up hearing the protests and the stories of the lives that have been harmed by this evil. By the time that generation is of voting age, they will no longer simply accept the social evil because they've never been acculturated to it. Their compassion switch never got stuck in the off position, so to speak. As this generation comes a political age, they have heard all the arguments against denying women the voting franchise, repressing African Americans, or denying gays the right to marry the ones they love. When it comes time for them to vote, they'll vote to end these evils. There is a good five million years of hominin history going back to Australopithecus and before. During this entire time, we were evolving along the same lines as lions, tigers, rats, and all social carnivores. We separated ourselves into familial units and learned to fear those who weren't in our familial unit or tribe. When this happened, we had one adaptation that provided us with a genetic advantage no other animal on the earth could touch. We had the biggest neocortexes on the planet. We were smarter than all other animals. We could track our prey. When lions see the tracks of their prey, they walk right past them, not realizing that their prey went that way. But we could track our prey, and we had bows and arrows to kill them from a distance. No other animal could do this. This was adaptive for us. It allowed Homo sapiens to spread into every habitable niche of our planet and thrive. Then came agriculture some 11,000 years ago or so. Since then, we've been able to live in ever larger social and political units, and with our cumulative brain power, build larger and ever more destructive weapons. Our programming to fear outgroups was no longer adaptive, but it's there. It's located in what's called our limbic brain, structures that operate outside of our conscious awareness, yet produce the emotions of anger, aggressiveness, fear, and anxiety. With the advent of agriculture, outgroups were no longer well-defined for us. They used to be anyone who lived in another tribe. But now, living in large nations, it can be tough to tell in-groups from out-groups. So we developed social stratifications. The European Great Chain of Being, the Chinese Confucian social stratifications, Indian castes, these were all results of our innate programming to stratify ourselves into in-groups and out-groups. This, of course, led to untold amounts of repression in lower classes throughout history. As I've said, the limbic system that had been so adaptive and helped us to spread to virtually every habitable niche in the world 
became maladaptive. Here's where our great adaptive advantage over other animals kicked in. The part of our brain that makes us smart, that allows us to do our conscious thinking, in which we slowly thought our way out of the great chain of being. That helped us realize that all of these, quote, heavenly ordained classes were wrong and that it was not right to repress lower classes. This was largely the result of the Renaissance in the second axis. Today we traced a very important step in the continuation of our journey to finally do away with the great chain of being, to ban the prejudice that has existed ever since the nobles and priests first established classes of people in Jericho, Uruk, and other ancient agricultural cities. Are we there yet? Can we say that we've overcome the last vestiges of the great chain of being? I don't know. Ask an African-American if they feel they've achieved parity with whites, if they feel as comfortable as white people do when they're stopped by cops. I've had this conversation with too many. The answer is clearly no. We went from segregation and the Jim Crow era of the 1950s to the paradigm-changing Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, to Vietnam War protests, to man walking on the moon, to Watergate, to disco, to nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island, and on and on. It's as though we came so close to cutting the last link in the great chain of being and then decided, well, that's good enough. Of course, African Americans today don't face a little bit of discrimination. I think most will tell you that it pervades their daily life in large and small ways. But the time has come for blacks to feel protected by the police and not be afraid of them. If W.B. Du Bois were still with us, he'd tell us a hundred years later that the problem of the 21st century remains the problem of the color line. And although people in the LGBTQ community experience less discrimination, especially in liberal parts of the country. They still experience discrimination in many places, but we're dealing with attitudes that have existed in most cultures, at least since the beginning of the historical period. As I've said, our ability to address the climate crisis and make the sacrifices that will be necessary to reverse our current slide into global warming goes hand in glove with our ability to feel compassion for those whom we may not necessarily consider to be in our tribe. In this regard, it's crucial that current inequities with regard to African Americans and LGBTQ people be addressed. So far, when we've addressed these issues, when we've fought to abolish slavery, or for women's suffrage, or for African American or LGBTQ rights, we thought we were struggling toward a greater social justice on that issue. But what we've really been doing all along is groping toward a deeper and more complete humanity. You read this week as W.E.B. Du Bois, The Souls of Black Folk. Yeah, a hundred years later, it's still very much worth the read. If you don't have the time to read it now, put it on your list of books to read before you die. And watch Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. The whole thing. NPR has a recording of it online and I'm sure there's others. Too many just know its highlights, but it's a speech that every American needs to hear in its entirety, at least once in their life. Enjoy. See you next week. Many thanks once again to our voice actor, Deborah Elizabeth M. 
for her reading of the excerpt from W.E.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk in our opening.